Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 All right, welcome everybody. This is Earth Destruction Directive, Episode Three. As always, I am your host, who does the most with the least, Luke Jackanetti. Welcome everybody to the show. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed last episode where we talked about Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. Uh, maybe hope some people had a chance to check that out if they hadn't seen it before. This week we're going to be talking about uh, the Return of Godzilla and its American counterpart, Godzilla 1985. Uh, which I understand will be much more difficult for anyone to check out since the movie's not actually available anymore in the States. Uh, we'll be right into it. Just wanted to bring everybody into the show, say welcome, and we'll be right back. Godzilla is like a hurricane or a tidal wave. We must approach him as we would a force of nature. We must understand him, deal with him, perhaps even try to communicate with him. All right, everybody. Our movie this month is The Return of Godzilla, a.k.a. Godzilla 1985, a.k.a. Gojira 1984. Uh, the film was directed by Koji Hashimoto. Uh, the special effects were by Teniroshi Nakano and produced, as always, by Tomoyuki Tanaka. Our story opens on a dark and stormy night out at sea where the fishing boat, the Yahada Maru, is getting tossed about by the rough seas uh, on the, in the cabin, we see a young man whose name we'll find out is Okamura. He looks a little rough. Uh, he's obviously a little bit green uh, at this fishing stuff, and, uh, you know, the storm is not exactly doing good things. But the crew is losing control of the ship in the rough, in the rough water and the high wind. And as they're radioing in their SOS signal, uh, they come upon an island. And uh, as Okamura looks out, the island seems to come alive almost, and there's a deafening roar and that's all that we see right now. The next morning, uh, a man named Maki is sailing his boat, listening to the radio, and he hears about the uh, Yahara Maru that it's missing. It's among several ships that are missing after the uh, very bad storm the night before. Well, he happens to come across it, and Maki gets on board the ship, and it's a ghost ship. There's, uh, you know, there's bodies everywhere, and nobody's, uh, no survivors, it seems like. There's also a strange... Uh, pus type of uh, mucusy substance on the ground. Well, as he opens a locker and finds Okamura alive inside, clutching a knife, he's attacked by what looks like some kind of giant thing. It's hard to really describe it. Uh, this is a monster called Shakaris, and he's a giant sea louse. And uh, Maki is quickly overcome by the by Shakaris, but uh, Okamura manage, uh, manages to stab it to death from behind. Back on a local island, Maki calls the story in because he is, in fact, a reporter. And he calls the story into his editor that he's found the Yahada Maru, and uh, Okamura is talking about how the, uh, the island seemed to come alive and destroyed the ship. And, you know, Maki is not one to sit on a story, so he calls it in and they get back to Tokyo. Back in Tokyo, the story is not run because uh, Maki's editor says that they believe the mon that the cause 
Japanese government believes the cause to be Godzilla, even though he was apparently destroyed in 1954. Apparently he's still alive. And they don't want this story to get out because it's going to cause panic. And so they tell him to sit on the story, but to continue working on it and see if he can do some background. Well, doing some digging, Maki runs into uh, Professor, Professor Hayashida. And Hayashida, his lab assistant, is a woman named Naoko, who is Okamura's sister. Talking with Hayashida, Hayashida's been studying Godzilla for most of his life, ever since his parents were killed in Godzilla's initial attack in 54. And originally he studied him for vengeance, but at this point, scientific curiosity has overcome his desire for revenge. And he simply wants to understand Godzilla. Maki talks to Naoko to try and get more information about Okamura, and he discovers that the Japanese government hasn't told anyone that anybody survived the Yahata Maru, including Naoko, who doesn't know her own brother's alive. So Maki arranges to have her um, basically sneak, snuck in to where Okamura is being hospitalized and reunites them. And um, actually, it's kind of funny because he brings a photographer with him, and Naoko gets mad at him because basically the implication is that he helped her just to get the scoop. Meanwhile, in the uh, Japan Sea, a Soviet nuclear submarine finds a huge sonar reading that they can't identify. It, it uh, is moving very quickly. Nothing on, doesn't match any sound profiles they have. It's not a biological or uh, agent because it actually seems to be pinging them with sonar. So left with little choice, the Soviets fire two torpedoes into the target and are initially happy because there's no return fire. So whatever it is, they, they feel that they're safe uh, until the target keeps coming and is directly above them. And it's a massive, fast-moving target and the submarine is destroyed. And I would like to say that uh, I always liked this scene, seeing the submarine get destroyed. It, it's um, very well put together. Uh, I like the suspense, typical submarine movie type suspense stuff, but uh, when cause we know it's Godzilla, but of course they don't. Well, needless to say, the sinking of a Soviet nuclear submarine causes a huge international incident, with the Soviets immediately blaming the Americans, and the Americans denying it because obviously they didn't do it. And the back and forth escalates very quickly, and the political analysts are predicting that there may be a limited nuclear exchange in Europe if the situation continues on the current trend. So the Prime Minister of Japan is left with little choice, and he calls a press conference and tells the world that the Americans are not responsible, that it was Godzilla who destroyed the Soviet submarine. This causes, of course, panic, but, uh, you know, it's better panic than thermonuclear war. Around this time, the American and Soviet ambassadors arrive in Japan and have a sit-down with the Prime Minister, and both sides say that they must allow the other state, they, Japan must allow them to use nuclear weapons to destroy Godzilla. Uh, the, the Soviet ambassadors understand a little peeve because they've already lost a nuclear submarine. They've already had men killed and, and lost uh, assets, and they don't want to be ham-tied by... Uh, by Japan's nuclear policy. And the United States ambassador uh, also says that you must allow us to use nuclear weapons on Godzilla. The prime minister refuses, and he cites the three principles, which were, uh, can, which were 
added, which were part of the Japanese Constitution following World War II, that Japan will not possess, make, or allow the use of nuclear weapons. And there's actually a really good scene with the Prime Minister and his cabinet debating this back and forth, talking about, you know, can we, you know, can we allow the use of nuclear weapons? You know, would, you know, even in this most dire of circumstances. And there's a great line when the Prime Minister goes back and tells the ambassadors no, that the American ambassador says this is no time to stand on principles, and the Prime Minister says no, it is the right time when principles are at stake. Uh, he later reveals to his uh, aide-de-camp that the way he convinced the President and the Premier not to use them was he said, well, what would you do if this was, instead of Tokyo, if this was Washington or Moscow? Could you drop a nuclear weapon on your own country knowing how many of your own people it would kill? It's a very well, uh, well-made, effective scene. I really like it. Definitely a sign that things were changing from the... Uh, the, the tail end of the Showa era when, when you know we were getting just monster mashes. Now that the world is on watch for Godzilla, they begin to track his movements. They're able to get a the Japanese government able to get a thermal image that was transmitted by a Soviet submarine right before it was sunk. So they have a general idea of where he is, and they're not sure where he's heading because originally initially it looks like he's heading back out to sea, but you know they the speculation that uh, of course he'll attack Japan, and sure enough. Godzilla surfaces uh, and attacks a nuclear power plant. Now, Hayashida, Okamura, and Maki are there because Hayashida has a theory about where Godzilla will appear and involves the consumption of nuclear materials. And he's proven right, of course, when he attacks a nuclear power plant. Um, he attacks the power plant and actually reaches into cooling tower and pulls the reactor out of the building. And you can see him absorb the nuclear radiation uh, from the reactor. This is a great scene. This is a very well-known scene. Uh, this has appeared several times uh, in toys and other collectibles with uh, Godzilla holding the reactor with this uh, snarl on his face with the steam pouring out of the cooling tower. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say that I really dig the Return of Godzilla suit. Um, it's got these dead eyes on it. It looks totally inhuman. Almost like uh, you know, like a reptile, just completely soulless eyes that stare out from this brow. And he's got little fangs, uh, like canine teeth in the front, and they just look really cool. Uh, we also, the first time in this scene, we get to see the Cybot, which is the 25-foot-tall electronic puppet that was used. And it looks pretty good. It's got a good range of motion. The main problem with it is that the eyes are different on it versus the suit. So... It doesn't look like the same monster, but, you know, they were trying something different. Anyway, as Goji attacks the power plant, um, Aishida and Okamura and Maki are observing him, and uh, Maki's taking, uh, or excuse me, Okamura's taking uh, readings with a uh, various equipment. When they see a flock of, and Maki's taking pictures, that's right, Maki's taking roll-to-roll of pictures. Well, as he's attacking the plant, they see a flock of birds fly out towards sea, and shortly afterwards, Godzilla turns and walks off back into the sea. So, as the world speculates, when will Godzilla re-come back again? Japan begins to build up their self-defense force to defend the country against an imminent attack. And sure enough, Godzilla, uh, well, before Godzilla reappears, uh, Okamura and... Um, 
the professor and Maki and Naoko are they're they're studying the data that they took when he attacked the power plant. And Okamura makes the connection with the flock of birds. And so Hayashida, the professor, says that he speculates that because Godzilla was mutated from a dinosaur and so he has a you know reptilian brain, dinosaurs and birds being evolutionary close, that you know, Godzilla may have a similar response to a magnetic field the way that birds do. Birds, you know, navigate themselves and migrate via the magnetic field. So he thinks that maybe Godzilla has a similar reaction to magnetic fields and that this may be a way for them to manipulate Godzilla and to drive him someplace away from population centers. Working on a plan, Professor Hayashida sends Okamura to visit with his colleague of his, who is a geologist on Mount Mahara. And there they talk about the possibility of a controlled uh, detonation to create a small-scale volcanic eruption where no lava would leave the crater. The plan being that if they can use the magnetic wave, they can got, uh, draw Godzilla there, then trap him in the volcano. Soon, Godzilla reappears, appearing out of Tokyo Bay in the middle of the night, and he's met by stiff resistance from the JSDF, but their fighter jets are no match for him. As he gets closer to the uh, coast, he's pounded by their long-range artillery, tanks, and other heavy weapons. But with one sweep of his thermonuclear breath, Godzilla annihilates the entire force. It's an extremely cool scene where we just see it's uh, just looking straight down the line at all these weapons and just unloading, and Godzilla just sweeps them with his uh, atomic breath. And, you know, this scene has the soundtrack and then all the sound effects, the explosions. And then after he sweeps them with the with his breath, it not only is, our, is all the machinery and destroyed and all the men killed, but it's absolutely silent. And it's just Godzilla sitting there looking at the flames and there's no soundtrack. It's just silent. And it is creepy as hell. So Godzilla begins his trip inland heading into uh, downtown Tokyo. There's a great scene with a bullet train, which is of course a reference back to the original Godzilla with the train. Um, Nakano, I swear, this guy, is he's great. Uh, he loves his big explosions, and he really works them in. There's a bit of stock footage here, which was originally used in... Uh, the first place I saw it was in Last Days of Planet Earth, a.k.a. Prophecies of Nostradamus, where the whole line of cars on the overpass just blows up. And uh, he uses it here. This was the last time that piece of stock footage would be used. But, um, you know, we see Godzilla uh, make his way into Tokyo, where... You know, this is the city he destroyed 30 years earlier, but now he is dwarfed by all the skyscrapers and everything. It's really very well done. The effects are very nice. The miniatures are some of the best we've uh, seen out of Toho, before or after. The Prime Minister, in addition to the uh, traditional self-defense forces, they're also, they prepare and unleash the... Uh, Super X, which is a flying fortress which was designed specifically to defend the capital in case of attack. They've loaded it down with uh, cadmium-shelled missiles. The idea being that the cadmium will, which is similar, which is material that is used inside the, a nuclear reactor, will help uh, shut down Godzilla in the same way that the cadmium contains radiation during a, inside a nuclear reactor. Well, the Super X is dispatched, and uh, you know, it and Godzilla trade back and forth. The Super X is able to fire several shots uh, of the cadmium missiles down Godzilla's throat. And 
we see him get sluggish and his heart start to beat slower and slower and slower until the King of the Monsters collapses and crashes into a, a building which is substantially taller than him and he just laid out. Well, meanwhile, Hayashida and his crew are still feverishly trying to finish the magnetic wave generator even though the city has been evacuated. Uh, they need to get it done so that they can, you know, lure him out because uh, they still don't want to. They still don't, obviously don't want him in the, in the city. What they don't know is that when Godzilla attacked the harbor, there was a Soviet freighter there that contained a clandestine nuclear launch station. And when Godzilla uh, just landed on the harbor, he ended up. Uh, the big wake he caused knocked the freighter into the uh, harbor wall and severely damaged it. And the failsafe on the machine was to launch the missile if it lost communication. And despite the heroic efforts of the uh, captain, the missile is launched. So unknown to anyone, there is a nuclear missile that was fired in orbit and is aimed at, uh, at Tokyo right now. So once the launch is detected, the, you know, it seems like Godzilla's defeated because he's laid out from the cadmium, but now it's going to be something, you know, even worse. It's going to be a modern thermonuclear weapon that is going to annihilate, you know, Tokyo and hundreds of miles around it. So working with the Americans, the Japanese are able to devise a plan where the Americans will attempt to use an offensive missile in a defensive capacity and shoot down a the Soviet missile uh, in orbit. And... Um, they, they, they do it, and they fire the missile, and sure enough, they're able to hit it, and it stops uh, the missile from detonating and wiping out Tokyo. But the problem is that the nuclear explosion in orbit not only creates an EMP that wipes out, um, you know, shuts down a lot of uh, pretty much everything that's electronic anywhere within a couple hundred mile radius, it also creates a nuclear storm, and we see this beautiful churning red sky as a, as a storm starts and the, the lightning begins to strike Godzilla and it revives him. So Goji gets his way, uh, gets, gets back to his feet, and the fight's back on with the Super X while uh, Professor Hayashida, Okamura, uh, Naoko, and, uh, Okum, and uh, Maki are trying to escape the building that they're in. They're now trying to get airlifted out. And the professor and Okamura managed to get airlifted out, and they're flying to Mount Mahara with the magnetic wave generator. Uh, well, uh, Naoko and Maki have to go down the stairs and escape and try and avoid Godzilla on these beautiful rubble-strewn giant sets that they're running on. Uh, Goji, meanwhile, is still tangling with the Super X. They're going back and forth. Um, the Super X is out of cadmium missiles, so they're using just regular firepower and uh, let's just say that in the tradition that would continue for the next several films, the Super X does not uh, win the day as uh, Goji blasts it to the ground and then topples an entire building on top of it, destroying the Super X. Once they get to Mount Mahara, uh, Professor Hayashida and Okamura activate the magnetic wave generator and they begin to draw Godzilla towards them. So. Everyone watches poignantly as Godzilla walks back into the sea, irrevocably drawn by his own natural instinct towards the magnetic wave that they generated. He shows up at Mahara, and he can't help it. He, he sees the generator, and he stares at it, and he just keeps 
walking. He ended up actually stops on the crater uh, of the volcano, but the crater beneath him gives way and falls down to another level. And we see him fall uh, further inside the volcano as the explosions are triggered and the eruption begins, and Godzilla is trapped inside the uh, fiery pit of the volcano, and the world is apparently safe from the King of the Monsters. And that's our story. I really enjoyed watching uh, the Jap finally, finally watching the Japanese version of this film. That really was the impetus for me to do this podcast, was when my brother got me a copy of this at the Chiller Show in Jersey, I guess, is where the Chiller Show is at. And, oh my gosh, this is such a good film. Growing up, uh, I had a copy, I still do have a copy, of Godzilla 1985 on VHS. And I liked Godzilla 1985. You know, the cut, the... The added footage with Raymond Burr and the, the American knucklehead military guys, you know, the, it's not great, but hey, you know, I liked having Raymond Burr in Godzilla King of the Monsters, so I didn't mind so much him having him here. And then the Japanese stuff was really good. I mean, I loved the effects. I liked the story. Uh, I liked the, the suit. The suit looks so, so good in this movie. But watching the Japanese one, oh my gosh, the American one is like the Cliff Notes version of this movie. This is a great movie. This is really a a worthy update to the original Godzilla and just a tremendous film. Uh, The Prime Minister in this movie is tremendous. Prime Minister, whose name... I don't have the name of the actor here in front of me. I'm sorry. Uh, He has a lot of great scenes as he has to, you know, uh, deal with everything that keeps happening between the the nuclear crisis and Godzilla's arrival and then... Uh, the, the the missile being launched and oh it's just he is he is tremendous and he, his role is cut down so much in the American one it's not even funny uh, just a, a study of leadership and bravery and you know a guy who has to deal with all these problems and deal with them in an effective manner it's very well done similarly Professor Hayashida is another really good character he's sort of like the uh, you know, he's like the anti-Serizawa. Serizawa was this young, tortured soul, whereas Hayashida is middle-aged and seems relatively well-adjusted. Um, his his fire from his youth has given way to, his, like I said before, scientific curiosity, and it makes for a very compelling character. At one point, he has a great line. He says, "I just want to send send him home," referring to Godzilla, and. Uh, you know, it's that I think that's that's pointed. It's, it's the human element of these movies is always what makes us care. It was true in our last episode when we talked about uh, Ghidorah, in that you know the the whole storyline with the with the humans was you know what drew us in, and it's the same here. Uh, you know, I watch this and I'm interested in the humans and whether they're going to make it or not, and it adds real context to what Goji is doing, you know, in his rampage. Um, the young folks, Maki, Naoko, and Okamura, they're, they're all right. They're a little stiff. Um, director Hashimoto is not really known as a actor's director. He's more known as an effects guy. Uh, he had done the similar, uh, similarly uh, large amount of special effects uh, in a film from also 1984 called Sayonara Jupiter, which was basically Toho's attempt to do a movie like 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's just nonstop, you know, space miniatures uh, with kind of a odd story put on top of it, but that's that's something for another time. 
So he doesn't do a whole lot with his younger uh, characters, but they're not bad. They're you know they certainly move the story along, and uh, you know they're not not cringeworthy or anything like that. Uh, some interesting, well, just some comments about the effects. Like I said, generally the effects are really good. The miniatures are very detailed. The only miniatures I don't like are the helicopters, and the problem with helicopters as miniatures is that they always seem like they're moving too slow. Because helicopters are relatively small for the size they move, excuse me, for the size they move, for the speed they move, the, for the miniatures to look right to scale, they have to move slower. And it's not like with a fighter jet where, you know, they just kind of zoom along. The chopper has to, can't move too fast, otherwise it's going to look like a toy. But if it moves too slow, like it does here, it just looks, looks like a model. So they're, you know, they're well detailed, but they kind of look a little out of place. Um, there's there's a kind of a silly bit when Godzilla attacks the train where we see that there the silhouettes of passengers are painted on, and I think that was only intended for a long shot, but we get a close up of it, so it looks kind of silly. Um, and the Cybot itself, it's a little herky jerky. I mean, it has a really good range of motion. It's a really good idea, but. Uh, it, it, it's not as smooth as it could be. They would improve on these kind of cable-controlled, computerized uh, puppet effects later on in the, the later Hesai films, as these uh, films from Godzilla 1985 through Godzilla vs. Destoroyah in uh, 94 are, are called. Um, but other than that, the effects, I think, are, are really well done. There's some great shots with a big, full-scale Godzilla foot, which I always love the big foot. Uh, the, there's some great opticals. I mentioned the storm, the, the writhing, roiling red sky when the nuclear bomb goes off is great. Uh, the sets, some of the, the, the large-scale sets that the, uh, the actors get to run around on just look fabulous. It's really great stuff, real great attention to detail. Uh, some interesting uh, little uh, tidbits here. There's, there's a character in this uh, movie, he's a bum. And when Godzilla attacks and everyone evacuates, he stays in town. And we see him go to a restaurant and put together a great feast for himself. And uh, we hear Godzilla, or we hear Godzilla roar outside. And he yells at him not to, you know, that you know, you're new in town, buddy. You know, you uh, you gotta stay. You know, don't don't tick me off, kind of thing. And he shows up later uh, to help uh, Naoko and Maki escape from the building. And he's he's a funny character in the. Uh, the American release, actually, they change it around so that he dies. It's like, what? Why do you kill the, the goofy comic relief character? But he, he's funny. I, I, I always like that character. It's, it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's not surprising somebody, you know, it's looting, just like anything else, but he makes it funny. Uh, also interesting, right at the end of the Japanese cut, we get a J-pop song called Goodbye Godzilla. It's a J-pop song, but it's actually recorded, I think, by a Norwegian group or... Swedish groups up like that. Very strange little 80s J-pop song. Not surprising that that was cut. Speaking of cuts in the U.S. version, um, the major one, and I, I really need to talk about this, I mentioned when the uh, Soviet tanker, uh, or freighter, I should say, is damaged, it causes an automatic launch of the missile. Well, in the American version, instead of desperately trying to stop the missile from being launched, the Soviet captain actually is desperately trying to launch it. And that, coupled with some of how the scenes with the ambassadors are cut, really makes the, the Soviets look really, really bad. I mean, understandably, this was 1985, the United States kind of at the height of the, you know, the, 
the 80s thermonuclear cold war but it, it comes off as amateurish now looking at it um and i don't i don't particularly like it i really like the more balanced and uh fair way that it's portrayed in the japanese version the other major cut that bugs the heck out of me and i never liked this as a kid was that they made a high sheet of thought in the Japanese one, of course, is that the presence of the magnetic field, they can manipulate it, they can draw Godzilla where they want. Well, in the U.S. one, this becomes actually the sound of the birds chirping. Think about that. So instead of creating a magnetic field that draws Godzilla there, they play the sound of the birds chirping. And he's drawn to the sound of the chirping birds. And that is so stupid. That is so stupid. Uh, so dumb. It plays so much better with the magnetic field because the idea that they're manipulating the magnetic field and they're working on this for days and days makes more sense, too, than just playing a really loud sound of birds chirping. Like I said, this the American version, it's not, it's not that bad. I like seeing Raymond Burr there, but there's no reason to watch the, the American version anymore If now that I've seen the Japanese one. And unfortunately, that's just the case. One thing I did notice while watching the American one, the movie is like exactly 88 minutes long. And I got to thinking, well, 88 minutes long, you know what that is? That is a two-hour time slot on TV. So maybe New World, besides, you know, trying to make some money releasing it to theaters, maybe they thought that they could sell it to TV. And in fact, I do remember watching Godzilla 1985 on TV on Channel, Channel 11 WPIX growing up in New York. So clearly, you know, syndicated movie package works for it. Oh, uh, let's see. Any other notes here? Uh, oh, there's a great bit where we get to see some pictures of the original Godzilla. And they, they show footage of him attacking Japan in uh, 1954. Always a sucker when they bring back footage of the original. Always a sucker for that. Um, let's see here. The hmm, Shakiris. Shakiris, the giant sea louse. He's never explained in the American one at all. He just kind of shows up, dies, done. In fact, his scene itself is actually cut down to almost nothing. Uh, in the Japanese version, of Shakiris is revealed to be a sea louse who had been feeding on the irradiated blood of Godzilla, and that's what made him grow giant. Shakiris kind of reminds me of the Meganeuron from the original Rodan. They're the, the preliminary bug monster. Not nearly as effective as the Meganeuron, uh, both from an, a special effects standpoint and from a storyline standpoint, but it was an interesting take. Certainly was surprising the first time I watched it. You know, nobody expects this big sea louse-looking thing um and it and you know it, it looks neat and it's a nice scene it's, it's kind of a horror movie aspect to the early parts on the yahata maru let's see any other notes here i think that, that's about it let's uh oh one other thing one aspect of the american film that i do like is almost every print of this movie including when it was in the theater and the old home video release included the short bambi meets godzilla and if you've never seen Bambi Meets Godzilla, I heartily recommend you go to YouTube and watch it because it is, it is hysterical. Always cracked me up to watch Bambi Meets Godzilla. All right. In closing, I'd like to just say that really enjoyed watching the Japanese version of this. Um, you know, years, years in the making as far as I'm concerned. But definitely a much better film than the American version. Um, as far as tracking it down, that's going to be tough. You can find... Uh, Region 3 DVDs on eBay fairly easily. Like I said, I got mine through my brother through a dealer uh, at a show, so that may be the best way to go. If you want to see the American version, 
you can find VHS copies relatively easily on eBay as well. Um, you know, again, nothing special, but if you want to see it, you can see it. Uh, definitely worth checking out. There's a lot to like about this movie. There's a lot of good effects. It's a good story. Um, it doesn't have any of the goofy aspects that the American cut did with all those idiot, um, uh, you know, U.S. Army guys and the aggressive Dr. Pepper commercials. Oh, see, what happened is that Dr. Pepper had uh, started an ad campaign using a Godzilla lookalike, and right when Toho was shopping the movie around in the U.S., and when New World eventually bought the rights for a song, mind you, for a song, okay, they did the tie-in with Dr. Pepper because it already worked with Dr. Pepper's existing ad campaign. And so that's why, you know, everybody's drinking Dr. Pepper in the Pentagon, and it's like, it, You know, it's things like this that, you know, I, when anime fans complain about things done to animes when they get brought over to the U.S., I'm sympathetic to a degree, but then I point out stuff like this and why Daikaiju fans have it much, much worse. Okay? I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, but, yeah, as I was saying, if you want to get the American one, you can probably find that on eBay as well. Uh, this, uh, of course, would launch the Hesai films, which uh, would continue for uh, the next several years, right through 1994. And 94? No, 95. I'm sorry, 95. I'm counting the wrong year. Um, 95 was the release of Godzilla vs. Destoroyah. That was the end of the Hesai era. Um, but if you can track down a copy of this, I heartily recommend it. You will not be disappointed. Um, I think it's just a really solid, mature Godzilla movie. Definitely set the tone for the new series and starts it off with a bang. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Just for the record, 30 years ago, they never found any corpse. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. I'm going to close the show out now. If you have feedback, thoughts, complaints, angry misses, uh, cease and desist letters, anything type, uh, any type of correspondence you want to send, you can email us at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. And if you send in some feedback, we'll be sure to read it on a future episode. The home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet is, as always, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. There you can find links to previous episodes as well as direct downloads for all episodes of Earth Destruction Directive. Next time, I think we're going to talk about Godzilla x Megajirus, and let me tell you why. I have, in my bonus room, I have a one-sheet, of the American release of Godzilla King of the Monsters. I also have a one-sheet for the video release of Godzilla 1985. And as I was putting my posters uh, out of storage the other day, I found uh, a poster that my friend Bear bought me back in the year 2001. And it is a uh, half-sized Japanese poster for Godzilla x Megajirus. So I said, you know, Godzilla 1985 poster, Godzilla Megajirus poster. I did a show on movie. I did a half-sized movie. Now i got to do a Millennium movie. So we're going to talk about uh, Godzilla vs. Megajiras on the next show. Um, I think that's it. We didn't get any feedback from the last episode. I really would appreciate it, uh, guys and gals. If uh, you listen to the episode, just send me a quick email. I'll be certainly glad to read it. As I said, the address is earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Uh, you can also leave a comment on the blog at earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. I was on a podcast the other day, and they were amazed at my ability to shill for my own stuff. So I uh, expect more shilling in the future. Um, all right, that's all for now. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. 
Join us next time. We'll be looking at Godzilla X Mega Giris. Have a good one, everybody. I hope you succeed. But no matter what happens, Godzilla will live.